Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Courtney Watkins. Courtney loves fashion and she loves deals. So in 2013, she founded Mine and Yours, a luxury resale boutique with two retail locations in Vancouver. The big news is that Courtney is bringing Mine and Yours to Hogtown. So I'm looking forward to hearing how she plans to apply her brick, click, and pop business strategy to the center of the universe. <laughs> Welcome, Courtney, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Thanks for having me, Andrew. I am I am in Yorkville. I moved here a full week ago. So wow. seven days in Toronto. And so far, I am loving it. Fantastic. Uh, the apartment I got is a block away from where our new store is going to be and just walking around the area and the buzz. And it's been, yeah, it's been incredible and energizing. Well, on behalf of the entire city of Toronto and the GTA, Greater Toronto Area, we welcome you. We hope you have a great time. I feel very welcomed. <laughs> Thank you. What is Mine and Yours? So Mine and Yours is a luxury resale brand. So we buy, sell, and trade designer clothing and accessories. Um, and so somewhat like we want to be like walking into your favorite boutique or a high-end department store, that type of feel, except for everything is, you know, anywhere from 20 to 90% off original retail prices and um, gently used. Well, second-hand stores, of course, have been around forever. In particular, you know, Value Village has been successful in bringing gently used merchandise to the masses. Someone can buy or sell via Kijiji, Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace. How is mine and yours different? Yeah, what we've done is, you're right, secondhand has been around for a while. And luckily, over the last even five years, I would say it's really gaining popularity. There's so many different ways to consume and sell your items. But what we've done is really created a luxury shopping environment with secondhand items. So when most people walk into our walk into our boutiques, unless you know, it doesn't look like a secondhand store. Everything's merchandised really well. The brands are luxury. The quality is things look like they're still new. Um, and we also have a really like we have amazing customer service. We we kind of create not just from products, but eat from service, a more high-end shopping experience. Fantastic. Well, I think by learning more about you, we are going to learn more about your business and the whole retail landscape. So why don't we start, Courtney? Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. Yes. I, well, I was born in Port Hardy, uh, which is a yeah small town on the northern tip of uh, Vancouver Island. I can't say I remember a lot about it, but my dad had a sawmill. Uh, so that's why we were that's why we were up there. And then as far as from when I can remember, uh, we moved to uh, Maple Ridge, just a small town outside of um, outside of Vancouver. And my dad continued uh, running the uh, running his business. I have one older brother. And I would say we grew up in a very like fun, adventurous household, which I think has kind of carried those traits have have carried through to my adult life. Well, you always love fashion. You wanted to open a clothing store. So boom, you finished high school. At 17, you moved to Los Angeles and you went to fashion school, I understand. I did. Yeah, that was uh, an incredible experience. Uh, growing up in a smaller town outside of Vancouver, I would say the fashion scene was um, non, non-existent. Uh, so being able to go move to a you know, a big city, I also always liked. That's why I've been excited about my move from Vancouver to Toronto too. I like city life a lot of, you know, a buzz, lots of things going on. So to be able to go down to LA and find this huge community of people that had similar interests of mine. And I, I absolutely loved Fitum. Uh, it felt like I was, it didn't feel like I was going to school. I learned a lot, but it was an enjoyable experience as well. So it kind of felt like a hobby. Well, you know, you did this at the age of 17. My, my own daughter now is 16. And I think I'd have a heart attack if she said she's leaving for Los Angeles. What did your parents say? And, and were they supportive? Yeah, I so I had signed up for a local college to do a fashion, a one-year program. I am somewhat forgetful in my life and not not always the most organized person. So I forgot to sign up for the courses. So you, yes, you signed up for the program, but then you had to go in and register for the courses. I don't know if I forgot or I wasn't aware of how it worked. So, so everything was full. I had no classes that semester. And that is when it was actually my dad's idea. I was like, I don't know. I don't I don't have any school this semester. And he was like, you said you wanted to go to LA. Like, 
why wait? Go, you know, if, if that's what you want to do, go go to school early. So it was actually on their advice um, that, um, that that it pushed me to do it. I don't know. They might have regretted it. Then they were trying to get me back home and, you know. <laughs> wow. Well, that's great to get that support so young. Mm-hmm. You worked at a small boutique in Beverly Hills at a trend forecasting company. And then as Paula Abdul's personal assistant, Paula Abdul from Straight Up fame, Paula Abdul, the former Lakers cheerleader, Paula Abdul, former muse of Arsenio Hall. How did you become Paula Abdul's personal assistant? Yes, I, uh, as I said, I'm not the most organized person, but somehow in a job I was able to, I was able to do it. It was a girl I think I met at a bathroom bar in Hollywood and we became friends. And um, years later, I was styling for uh, commercials and I did the backup dancers for one of Madonna's tours. So I was starting to get my foot in the door in styling and she was uh, Paula Abdul's assistant and needed more support in the wardrobe and styling. So that's what I was hired on for. But then quickly, Paula had kind of gone through her staff and it was just me and my girlfriend Lauren left. That was So now I was her assistant and she was kind of like, okay, you can go back to styling, but I need assistant help for the next three months. Um, So I I think I worked for her for six months in total. And she had a lot of things going on, like a QVC line, her show. Um, There was lots of like lots of different avenues. So it was, you know, eventually I was supposed to go more into the fashion route, but I, I can't, you know, I don't know if I quit or got fired, but it was on her TV show. Hey, Paula, I think I brought her the, I told her that her jeans used to fit her yesterday or something Uh-oh. in the big fight. And, you know, anyway, <laughs> well, not to focus too much on this, but I did find it interesting. As you kind of alluded, it, it did not end well. There was a limo ride to an appearance on the QBC home shopping channel. And how did it all end? That was, I, I just, you know what, we were taking the uh, limo to the airport and I was just, it was very long hours and a, a bit of a stressful work environment. And it was just like, it was my tipping point. I didn't, I never got out of the limo. The limo took me back home and that was the end of my working relationship with Paula. Well, dealing with Paula Abdul sounded like an emotional experience, but you learned a lot. I did. Yes. Um, yeah. There was a lot of learnings and it just uh, one, it made me realize I don't want to be very famous. It's just like, it's a lot of work. Everyone kind of wants something from you. Uh, but there was so much. I mean, we went to award shows. We, I just got, like, I got exposed to so many things. And I was still probably 21 or 22. So at a, at a really young age and kind of got to see the back end of some of how the business works as well with dealing with her manager and the lawyers and even the QVC line, you know, like how, I didn't actually realize how much of a force QVC even still is to this day. Um, so yeah, lots of lots of learnings there. You were shuttling back and forth between Los Angeles and Vancouver. What brought you back to Vancouver for good in 2011? Um, that is, unfortunately, my dad uh, passed away in an accident. And I kind of just hopped on the next plane home. I wasn't really planning on moving back, but then he had businesses. So he had the sawmill, he had a chemical treating plant, Um, and next thing you know, I was like helping with some of the day-to-day dealings. We were trying to figure out if we were going to sell it or what we were going to do. And two and a half years later, I found myself running, uh, with my brother, my dad's, uh, Cedar Shake and Jingle Mill. That's, uh, quite a different business. I guess you found out wood was not your passion, but you did not see a future as a sawmill owner, but you did (laughs) learn how to run a business. It was like, a. A master's in business times ten. You know, there there couldn't have been a better a better way to really learn all aspects of a business and kind of being handed one and saying do something with it. Uh, so just from you know reading a P and L, finance, managing a team of you know thirty people that were all significantly older than you and had been there a lot longer than you, um, but it and was men. mostly men. Yes, yeah. And like I dealt with more of the inside office sales customers, and then my brother uh, dealt more with the um, outside, like actually running and manufacturing of the of the products. Well, as you apply it to mine and yours, what have you seen in your time in Los Angeles that you had not seen in Vancouver? Yeah, so after uh, after a few years of the mill, I was like, okay, I got this running a business thing down. Now let me uh, let me turn it into something that I find a little more interesting. So. At first, I was writing a business plan for rent the like a rent the runway in Canada. I had a business partner when I started it, so I was introduced to um, to Jigme, 
And we both used to live in LA. And that is where they had a lot of these kind of cool, curated secondhand stores. Um, And they also made it really easy to sell your items uh, where you get cash on the spot or store credit on the spot, where everywhere in Canada, what we found is you had to make an appointment, you had to set up an account, you had to have a minimum certain items, you had to wait for everything to sell, you had to go back in and get your check. So it was just, it just wasn't simple. Uh, So there was like Crossroads, Wasteland, and then Decades was a higher end one with some of the places we used to shop when we were in LA and saw there wasn't really anything like it in um, in Vancouver. So a couple months after meeting, we opened up our first Mine and Yours location. Very exciting. And this was 2013. Literally, how did you get started? So we started by, we had like little business cards that said, I like your style. That we go around and like women that, you know, we were wearing a nice outfit, we would uh, tell them about our, tell them about our business. And we started, we were looking for a store um, and then we ended up finding it was a live work townhouse. So Jigme lived on the top level, beginning six months. The middle level was her living room, and just the bottom was the store. And um, so we started by kind of selling stuff on Facebook Marketplace, on eBay, and then, but that was only a couple months in. And then we got our little three hundred square foot boutique, and I think it cost us like five to ten thousand dollars to outfit it. We bought everything Ikea secondhand on Craigslist. We found a woman, Karen from Craigslist that helped us build it and put it all together. We were painting, you know, cutting, drilling, kind of doing it, um, doing it all ourselves. So I'm, I'm about to do another build out and I cannot believe how I did it for so inexpensive. Back then, I would say 10 years later, my build out costs have gone up just a little bit. But uh, yeah, we were definitely, you know, scrappy and resourceful at the beginning. And um, a lot of that is is because we didn't take on investment. So we we, we self-funded the whole business. Well, it's a great example of what they call bootstrapping. And, and as you say, learning as you go. So you start by living in your business with this live-work townhouse, move to a neighboring townhouse, then a larger location nearby instead of opening a second location. But in 2016, uh, I understand you opened a second location, a larger in uh, Yaletown. We were pl- actually planning on opening a second location, but the the 2016 one was only a block away. So we did close down the townhouse business and then open our larger boutique. And then the second one in Yaletown opened in, gosh, I'm trying to remember years now, in 2021. Part of the way you accumulated your merchandise initially was something called a reverse shopping party. What yeah. is that? So that is when we would throw, like before we even had a store, we would borrow friends' nice apartments and, you know, just get some charcuterie and wine and throw a, ver- a reverse shopping party. So that would be people would come to us with their clothes um, and we would go through them on the spot there and they would kind of leave with cash. Well, who doesn't like that? Yeah, it was fun. It was just a way to get the community together as well and start to get to know people before we had a space. Um, and then even when we had a space, we started, then we started hosting more shopping parties and reverse shopping parties, but they would, they would kind of go both ways. You know, we talk about the importance of an elevator pitch being tight and concise. So I absolutely love your business strategy. What is brick, click and pop? Brick, click and pop. It means we have brick and mortar stores. Click is we have our online store and then pop is we do pop-ups. So pop-ups have always been an important part of our business, whether it's a weekend pop-up in a collaboration with other brands, or um, we have done a few pop-ups before we came to Toronto. We did a few one-week-long pop-ups out here, testing the market and seeing kind of what the clients wanted and um, and testing out a few areas. We were actually supposed to do um, a two-month pop-up March 28th of 2020 was our launch date. I have a memory of something happening in March 2020. So you were going to do a pop-up in Yorkville. And how far along were you when kind of COVID shut everything down? Well, we like we heard about this thing called COVID as we were getting all of our merchandise ready to ship out. And I was definitely nervous. But my strategy were we are full steam ahead until we stop. We can't pause and delay and wonder what we're going to do. So we were continuing to move forward until the day we completely pulled the plug. And there was a joke now. There was such a sign. We because we packed up all of our product to ship out and we put it on a pallet and the truck came to pick up the pallets of product to send to Toronto. And we have two front doors and they both needed to be open to get the product. And the one door was would not open. The lock mm. was jammed. 
We got to call the locksmith in. The locksmith couldn't fix it. He had to come back the next day. I'm like, I feel like the universe is telling me something right here. Like physically, I cannot get the product out of the store to go to Toronto. But anyway, I didn't listen to it. And we shipped all the product to Toronto and I flew out here and we just started changing our strategy from a pop-up to private shopping events to we kind of change, change, change. And then we we never launched the pop-up. Well, it's now good that you uh, kept with it because obviously after your two locations in Vancouver, you're going to be opening in Toronto. Where are you opening and when are you opening? We are opening on uh, the address. It's 79 Yorkville Avenue. Uh, so right in kind of the heart of Yorkville. I have Yorkville was the the street I wanted for the last like three or four years, just walking it. I felt like I loved the energy and the vibe and it just seemed like the perfect the perfect location and incredible neighbors. And we are opening the end of July. Wow. So this is an exciting... But things seem to be, you know, moving around a little bit. But we are opening as soon as we possibly can. You are smart. Never give a date because... And then, of course, they can call it a soft launch if you want as you get to the day. And what's the size of this space? So the space is... This will be our biggest store yet. It's a 3,000 square feet um, over three levels. So the main floor and the top floor are going to be our retail. Uh, So we'll have... You know, we're redoing kind of our iconic bag wall um, on the mid-level. It'll be mostly accessories and um, and handbags. And then the top level will be a lot of our ready-to-wear. Um, and then the downstairs level, the front half of it will be our buying lounge. So that's where people can come uh, make an appointment and we can go through all their items on the spot or even just um, even do drop-offs. Uh, and then the back half of that is where we'll have our e-com, um, like our e-com studio. Are you aware of what the space was before you? Yes, I am. It was uh, it was free people. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think what's interesting to me is when COVID hit and suddenly nobody was shopping and suddenly tenants were closing down and leaving. And when you think of, and I'm sure you've learned all this as you've been spending your time in Toronto, the Mink Mile, that area along Bloor, I mean, with all these high-end retailers, you're right in there. What was the uh, environment towards signing your lease? Were they like so hungry to have someone come in or is it still considered kind of... The- some of the most expensive uh, real estate in Toronto. Yeah, they weren't that hungry. Like I was like, oh, at least since I waited till right after COVID, I'm going to be able to negotiate really great leases. Um, And there is, it's actually in the prices on Bloor Street still, even though there is so many vacancies where they're asking like $150 a square foot plus 120 of additional rent. It's like, I no wonder there's so many businesses going out, going out of business. And I found they weren't negotiating that much. Um, I thought I had a spot in Yorkville last year. I was negotiating for probably six months and then they ended up, um, it's only a block away. They ended up going with a different tenant. So I was quite crushed um, from September to then finding this new location in February. But I'm, you know, all everything happens for a reason. And I do like this space uh, better. It's better suited for us. But they didn't, there wasn't a ton of negotiating room, I would have to say. I think there was in 2020 and 2021. But as far as Yorkville Avenue, there's, I think there's only besides my space, which I, I got like before, before Free People was even closed, my realtor sent it over to me. And I knew that this was the space I wanted. But other than that, I think there's one one vacancy and it's it's like a weird layout where you you go in you have to walk upstairs right away but there isn't um there isn't a ton of street level vacancy on yorkville well you know what they say courtney the three rules of the successful retail operation are location 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 did this apply to mine and yours and it sounds like like they're not making more yorkville spaces it sounds like this does apply yeah, it now I believe this, but I did always hear location, location, location. And I actually never believed it before because our first two locations were like that live work townhouse was it had a couple little businesses near it, but it was like we would call it like the hidden gem. It was kind of hard to find. There was trees all in front of it. I mean, it looked like houses because it kind of was houses. Uh, so we did not have a it was not on a prominent shopping area. And then even when we moved to our first real kind of retail location in 2016. It wasn't, it's in downtown Vancouver, but it wasn't a really 
like it wasn't a desk it was a destination sorry it wasn't like a shop a true shopping area and then when I opened our Yale Town location right on a busy corner we had a JJB next to us coffee shop like a lot of people walking around there I realized that the location 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 I always heard was correct and that's when we really saw a jump in our business so I knew that coming into Toronto like I was ready to wait and I that the perfect first space was really important. Well, we talked about Brick, two locations, Vancouver, this one in Yorkville Avenue that you're clearly very excited about. We talked about Pop, Pop-Ups mm-hmm. as a test system before signing a long-term lease. Let's talk about the Click, e-commerce. You are a Shopify retailer. Were you always, or did you consider kind of building out your own e-commerce platform? We started with Shopify from the very beginning. It just seemed like the most user-friendly way to start a website. And me and my my business partner, we had no idea anything about web. I think, again, we hired someone for, I think it was like $1,000 we paid for them to come in. They also didn't have a ton of experience to like shoot our products, get them up and launch our first website. So uh, it was, again, it was a way to test it before. I know I've watched a lot of other retailers spend $30,000, $100,000 building out this complicated website only to have something break and not know who to go to or things in technology change so quickly. Um, something that might be, you know, high tech one minute, like a year later, doesn't integrate with something you need to. So I, um, from the beginning, it was Shopify just for their kind of user friendly, like, you know, where to go. There's always support when you need it. Is it always the best support? You know, not you know, probably not as good as having your own IT department, but it is significantly less expensive. Now, you're going to have to be patient with me. I'm a bit of a geezer. The e-commerce, I'm still not, I don't shop that way myself, but I particularly don't exactly understand, especially for clothing and handbags and fashion items. Don't people need to touch and feel these things? Can they shop via e-commerce? Yeah. So the majority of our business is still in store over e-com, but we are we're, we're seeing a growth in online and so are all companies. One, what we sell a lot of is accessories and handbags. You know, the Chanel bag is going to fit. Um, and a lot of times clients have gone in, they've felt this product before, they know the brand, they trust the brand. Maybe they saw it at, they went into the Chanel store, they went into the Louis Vuitton and touched and felt it. And then they now see it on our site. Or people get to know their sizes. They start to, you know, they start to know the brands. And a lot of more and more people are shopping online. Personally, I'm kind of the same as you. I like, I like the experience of trying things on and kind of the whole, you know, ceremony of going into a store and talking to the sales associates, seeing what's new in there, trying it on and walking home with it right away over online but I don't think that maybe we're the norm anymore. <laughs> well, it sounds to me what I find interesting is you kind of are saying that in-person, in-store, and online actually complement each other. Yeah, we'll always, and that's why we'll always kind of keep our strategy to, you know, brick, click, and pop. And a lot of people are like, oh, you're opening more retail stores. Like, that's so ancient. What are you doing? It's so expensive. Like, focus on e-com. And I'm like, we get to know our customers in the store. They they really get to know our brand. They get to know our like our, our people, and then they start shopping more with us online. But but we'll always you know have the be growing our retail business as we grow our online business. And clearly, you have not found out yet because you haven't opened your Yorkville location. But from your Vancouver experience, have you found sales come from you being a destination shopping point or walk by traffic? It's a little bit of both. We are it's way more walk by traffic now that we're in a high traffic area where before I would say about, you know, 70 to 80% of people that were walking in our door were walking in our door for a reason. And a lot of that was with, you know, they've they've already shopped with us, word of mouth, someone told about us or they found out about us through social media. The new location in Vancouver, it's put, gone down a little bit and I think especially with this Yorkville location, seeing the amount of traffic walking by, um, it will be, it'll be a lot of, a lot of the people coming into the door will be introducing to our brand. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We got the King of Bay Street, Wes Hall, Canadian ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, former CFL commissioner, Mark Kohan, Kit Corporation's David Cinnamon, 
and broadcasting legends Wendy Mesley and Gord Martineau, how they did it directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. You are only targeting half the population with women's items. How do you or will you target men? We do have a men's, uh, we have started selling men's. Um, it is, we we have like a rack or two, um, a small section in each of our store. We've actually been toying with the idea of doing like a full men's pop-up, speaking of our, you know, brick, click and pop um, and getting all the products together um, and really making more of an impact with our men's, um, with our men's items. So even with with Yorkville is opening soon, but we're still figuring out our men's strategy there just because it sounded really big at the beginning with 3,000 square feet, but only 2,000 of it is retail. We have a, there's a big back area. There's a massive staircase in the middle. Now that I'm fixturing it out, I'm like, oh my gosh, I need more space already. So I don't know if the men's, uh, if Yorkville will have a men's section to start, but if it doesn't, what we will do is um, is end up doing, you know, turning maybe the top level for a week into a men's kind of pop up and focus on it there. But we do have a men's section on our website. And it is something that we're doing. We just we we just have with floor space on each of our in each of our location, we don't have a, a very large section dedicated to it. And is there such a thing as a children's section? Would there be a children's market? We do. We do children's as well. Uh, we have um in each location, we have a little bit of children's. And um, again, it's that um, we I don't think we have it on our website at the moment, but um, but we have done like focus uh, email focuses um, and done like social for the day and put it on. And it does do well, um, especially like the women, the, the women that are coming in shopping full price are, you know, a lot of them do have um, do have children and and children secondhand is you know, when you're thinking about a $55, $75, $95 price point, um, that, that product can move quite quickly. I, I understand when you originally opened, you kind of had a straight cash payout model to acquire your goods. Uh, I think you're working more with consignment. How does that work? Yeah. So when you um, when you come in and sell to us, you have three options if the item is for $450 or $500 more, if that's what we're going to price it for, um, then you can do cash on the spot, store credit, or consignment. Uh, so the cash would be anywhere from 30 to 50% um, of what we're going to list it for. So anything under 1,000 is typically 30, 35%. Over 1,000 is 40%. Um, and Chanel and Hermes is 50%. Um, if you want store credit, uh, so that would mean you can use the um, use the, the money in the store right away. You get 50%. Sometimes, again, for Chanel and Hermes, it's up to 60%. Um, that amount is also tax free, so it's kind of like sixty two percent. So, um, yeah, let's say you're selling us a thousand dollar bag, you get five hundred dollars to use in the store, and then you don't have to pay tax on that five hundred amount. And then, if you did want to consign it, so if you wait wait for it to sell, then you would get anywhere from fifty to seventy percent of the retail price. And then items under four hundred and fifty five hundred, we just offer the cash and um, store credit amount, not the consignment. So again, we're kind of sticking to just making things a little bit simpler and, and quicker. Well, the uh, the credit sounds like when I trade in my car, it sounds like the same advantages. Exactly. Yes. When I was learning about the tax, when we uh, initially opened our store, that was the example that they that they used. Something that came to mind, Courtney, when I hear about your business model, how do you deal with fake items? And, and do you have a problem with scammers bringing you fake items? We don't have a big problem with it as because most of our clients are our existing clients. So we don't have we have some people that come in and sell us one off items, but a lot of it is relationship driven. And those w women are coming back to us. Some come every two weeks, um, whether they just sell a couple items at a time. But again, it's a bit of a hobby or um, we go to their closets, um, go into their homes twice a year and do closet cleanouts. So I, we don't because of our relationships, we don't have that big of an issue. But fakes are getting really good so it is definitely something we're always uh, we're always aware of um, so initially we do an in-house authentication of all items where we're looking at stitching labels um, and how the product is manufactured and then for all of our handbags we use a company called entropy and it uh, takes so you, it's kind of like a magnifying glass hooked up to an iPhone and it takes like microscopic photos of the bag of the stitching and it 
runs it through its algorithm because it's done it with all the authentic bags and it makes sure that all of the fabrics and pieces that are used um, are that match what was used in a real bag. So we, yeah, we do that for all of our handbags. And, um, and you know, because of that, they give a lifetime guarantee um, as well. So that we then give the lifetime, lifetime guarantee too. We have seen, you know, some people come in and, um, you know, try and sell us fakes or even like they got it as a gift and maybe they don't know. I want to ask you about that. There must be people in good faith who bring you fake items for you to purchase. And, and it must be like a, a very sensitive way to handle that have you figured out a way yes um kill them with kindness no (laughs) we're just like very grateful that they brought in the products it depends sometimes if i know someone's trying to scam me maybe i'm not as grateful but um we i mean i had a girl this was years ago and i remember her dad had passed away and he bought her this prada bag and he brought it back from this trip and she was finally ready to part with it because she had some other items and we had to tell her that the bag was um, we didn't even tell her that the bag was not authentic because she was she was very upset. We just said we couldn't guarantee that it was authentic. So because of that, we are not able to sell it. So that's kind of our that's the verbiage I use if I really think that someone doesn't know. Um, and a lot of times people are they can be very embarrassed and we're like, it's OK. Like it's a, you know, just say like replicas are getting really good these days like it's okay you know we don't want to embarrass anyone um so we just we just watch our wording and we're very kind well it's like you say it's relationships and it's customer service Mm -hmm. courtney what about rentals why do i need to and if i am a customer of yours and i'm constantly refreshing instead of buying the next handbag uh why wouldn't i just rent it women and men as you know are now renting outfits for events Yeah. And that is, I mean, that's initially what I started writing the business plan for was a rental company. So we have had people ask us about a um, a rental service. And at this point, just with the amount we're expanding, we haven't had the opportunity to kind of put that in place. But what I will say is kind of like like our rental rental business is we buy back our product. So especially if you're going to use, if you're going to trade it in for store credit, um, if it's a handbag, depending on um, if you're bringing it back within 30 days, 60 days, or even six months, we'll give you 80% of the value of the bag um, back in store credit. So it's not a true rental program, but it's kind of our way to to be part of the circular economy, somewhat like rental, but not having to deal with the logistics of it at this point. Maybe when we, I stop opening <laughs> locations, uh, like we're opening one in in Van- in Toronto, but we're also looking at opening another one in Vancouver around the same the same time. So, um, just the like rent the runway is like they. I have a lot of friends in the U.S. that use the the rental business quite a bit, and um, and I think there's a couple in Canada that do well, and I'm a big supporter of that as well. But rent the runway, they say they're not a fashion brand; they're a logistics and dry cleaning company. And at this point, the, with the way that we're growing, like I don't have the capacity to put in a logistics and dry cleaning company into our process. So that's why we're not. But I'm, um, I know there's one called, I think, Fitzroy. And I'm, I'm definitely a big supporter of it. And I think that it's, um, it's, it's, it's an avenue to go um, that we might, we might enter in in the future. Well, uh, you're really hammering home the point that it's really about relationships and building your customer base. And they could be customers for life. It's certainly not one transaction. It's a long-term relationship. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the way you handle the resourcing for your stores. You've got two in Vancouver. You've just mentioned you're opening a third or looking at opening a third and one in Toronto. By my count, there's only one Courtney Watkins. How are you going to handle the uh, retail staffing, especially when you want them to make sure they're following your mindset of what mine and yours should be? Yeah, uh, I well, I feel really grateful to have an amazing leadership and management team. Um, it's it's 10 years in and that didn't happen overnight. I think that's actually been one of the biggest struggles and and issues is just finding the right people in the in the right seat because there isn't necessarily a a black and white guideline of that. Um, so just as we grow, we have a really a great team out in Vancouver. I'll be back and forth between the two, uh, but I also I also I trust that that team uh, to to make decisions and to live the brand. And then as I am opening um, opening in Toronto, I actually have a call um, right after this with someone I offered the GM position to, and 
it was like instant uh, when I, in the first five minutes of my interview with her, I was like, this is our girl. Uh, <laughs> so it's just about, you know, really having trust in the, in the, in the top people and then them, like I'm having them support in the hiring in Toronto here as well. So they're, you know, kind of treating this business like, like it's their own. I hired a recruiter to help me with, um, with all of the hiring and, you know, she's been kind of a, she's been a godsend as well. I don't know how I would have, we're bringing on 14 team members. So just that I'm, I'm in a bit of interview fatigue right now because it is, it does take quite a few interviews, but, uh, but she's been, she's been really helpful. And I don't know, I hear that it's so hard to find great staff and I'm, I'm lucky to, we've, we've gone through challenges, but especially in this last batch of interviews, like we have a lot of people that are really excited to, to come on board with the brand. And, um, and I think that there's a lot of really amazing people out there that are hard workers. So you just, you just got to find them. (laughs) For sure. Well, you know, if if location, 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 or one, two, three, number four is definitely the people. So people, I agree. Yeah. People could be two. It could be location, (laughs) people, location. (laughs) Okay. Maybe we'll reorder it. Now there's, Luxury brands themselves, and there's luxury brand retailers. Let's talk first about your relationship with the luxury brands. Can they be a source of like last season's supply of new goods to help them wind down their inventories? Do you have a relationship with them? Yeah, we. I don't with, let's say, the luxury brands, but we do with some more of the contemporary designer brands. Um, we'll buy their samples, and then we'll also buy some of their yeah, last season's product or product that didn't sell. Um, I've I've even gone in and this boutique in Saskatchewan was her, she had great product, but it just wasn't for the Saskatchewan market. And she ended up closing down. So I just bought her whole supply of business. So I have done that um, with, yeah, more of the contemporary brands. I used to go down to LA because um, I, you know, I used to live there. I still have connections there. So I would go to the showrooms and do big, big buys and even bring product that maybe wasn't set, you know, there wasn't that much of it available in Canada, um, up to Canada. As far as I would love for Louis Vuitton, you know, to to contact me and tell me that they'll let me sell their uh, last season's product, but they are, you know, the the luxury houses are really protective of their brand. So while it's not a, you know, I don't think it's impossible. I think it's harder to build those relationships um, because they, you know, a lot of the designer brands, they're starting to get into the secondhand market as well. So if there was an option um, for them to be reselling products or off seasons, I think they would um, they'd kind of keep it more in-house than than let mine and yours. But, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. Absolutely. And let's talk about that. I don't, maybe you want to even take credit for triggering this because they're also originally Vancouver based. Lululemon now has a like new e-commerce site. Uh, they pitch that you can trade in gently use Lululemon gear for credit and they will refresh it for someone else to discover in their online resale shop. As you mentioned, they're trying to keep it in-house. Uh, I guess this is the way the market's going. These will be competitors to you, so to speak. Yeah, I think they will be competitors, but also the market's growing so much. There is room for there's room for all of us. Um, even when you look at the new, um, how new retail is sold, there's department stores that sell tons of different brands. And then there's brand specific stores that are only selling their brands. So I think that in the secondhand market, that will continue to happen. And the more that the brands are pushing it, I feel like it just shows the more that it is accepted. And I love that you say, I don't know if Lulu's going to give me credit for... Um... <laughs> hey, you were you were first. They, they're seeing the way that, well, you're clearly ahead of the market. So good yeah, for you on that. Chip. We'll tell them to say, thanks, thanks, mine and yours for thinking of this. But yeah, I think it's really great that brands are that, that brands are doing it. And um, where, you know, when I first heard about it, I was because Gucci launched a resale program and I was like, oh, oh, no, are they going to eat into my market? But, um, you know, that's a scarcity, more of a scarcity mindset. And I really realized there's um, there's enough of um, there's enough business in the resale world for um, for it to go around. And what we do is we make it easy where you don't just bring in your Gucci, you can bring in all of the brands. And as long as it's a designer brand in good condition um, and not a really dated style, we'll take it. So we still just make it a lot easier for the customer rather than send your you know, Gucci here and your other brand stuff here and trying to kind of piece it all together. Um, we find our clients really one of the things they value about us is the convenience. What a great point. One-stop shopping. 
Do you have a relationship with the luxury brand retailers? I can see it. They may see you as stealing sales, so to speak, or they may see you as a necessary part of the ecosystem, i.e. the customer will only buy more new items once they have discarded their old items. They, I think different retail houses have different mentalities around this. Um, Some of them are not a fan of the secondhand market at all. And while I haven't had interactions with them, I know like what goes around comes around has been sued. Same with the real real. So there's it's not always a friendly environment with design houses and the resale market. Um, But again, with some of the companies starting to go into um, into secondhand, I think they're um, they're starting to open their minds about it as well. And I do feel like it feeds, you know, what we're doing is giving them more money back in their pockets to then go buy firsthand and consumers that are buying at full price are going to continue buying at full price even if they buy some of it at secondhand and um, discounted prices but I have clients that never would have shopped secondhand when I opened like we're almost like don't tell anyone I'm even selling to you like this is kind of embarrassing you know like we were like their hidden little secret and now like I see online orders come through and I'm like oh my gosh, like you bought this dress and, you know, like they do not need to buy secondhand, but it's the sustainability aspect of it. And they were like, oh, I, I, it sold out when it launched and I couldn't find it. I've been dying to get this piece. I was so excited when I saw it on your site. Well, it's, it's, that's very interesting. And now it's become almost a source of pride. Courtney, what do you mean when you talk about sustainability as a benefit coming from participating in the uh, resale market? Like when I went to fashion school, sustainability was not a word that was ever mentioned, you know, and like I used to like pat myself on the back that I was a great Forever 21 shopper. My friends would give me $200 and I would go to Forever 21 and spend the day there and like come back with a wardrobe for everyone. And I didn't realize that that was maybe not great for the planet. Like where are all of these $20 clothes going? Um, And really, there's, there's a lot of brands that are starting to think about the waste that they're using, the textiles that they're using and trying to be sustainable. But the best way to shop sustainably is to shop secondhand products that have already been worn. There's there's enough clothing and accessories out there that we could each just be buying and selling off each other for many years and like not producing uh, producing more apparel. Well, when you talk about Forever 21, you are, I believe, talking about fast fashion. What is fast fashion? And How is it related to the resale market, if at all? Well, I think the resale market is giving consumers that are looking for a lower priced option another alternative besides fast fashion. So I just reposted something about Shein, but like the amount of garments that Shein is producing in a day is like by the like millions and they're 90% of them end up in a landfill. Uh, so it's one of the worst polluting industries is the fashion and garment industry. And secondhand is giving you an option where if you're looking f- for something that's a little more price, you know, you're price sensitive. Yes, our, you know, we have things in our store that are $45, $55, $75, as well as $35,000. Um, but if you're, you know, going to the thrift store, then you have a lot more option of items that are in that lower price bracket and but that aren't manufactured over in China, you know, from not great labor conditions. And if something costs $5, then you have to think like, how was this manufactured? And and then you also don't have pride in it. It's $5, you just throw it away. And like, I'll say I have been caught up in, you know, buying costumes or, you know, the things we don't sell is like bathing suits. So sometimes I'll go online. I'm like, oh my gosh, these bathing suits, $25 each. And I've ordered like seven of them and they come and and one out of or two out of the seven fit and you're like oh well I still only paid 150 dollars but then like what are you doing with those other five like they're you know even if you donate them if they fit terrible um or they're you know no one's gonna want them and they don't have a label behind it that anyone values so anyway I told myself I'm no more cheap bikini shopping online (laughs) I have to live my brand now Courtney uh Clearly, you fish where the fish are, and I'm imagining that's why you have chosen to open your third location in Toronto. But expanding so far away from your Vancouver base, we talked a little about the staffing issues. Is this what keeps you up at night, that you're physically so far away from your home base? Um, No, I'm I'm excited. Uh, I always, like, I, I love traveling anyway, so I am often, you know, I've, I've, 
done trips where, you know, I'm in Europe for a couple of weeks and I come back and, you know, there's a fire or two to put out. But um, but I think there's just like what keeps me up at night is just the excitement of opening another store. And I my plan is to go back and forth. So I'm doing like five days to a week in um, in Vancouver and then the rest of the time in Toronto. And it's just like we do daily check ins with the team. I have a lot of I'm in touch very frequently with them. And now with the technology of Zoom, like we were doing a lot of our meetings because we have multiple stores via Zoom anyway. So I'm still feeling pretty connected to the store. I am a little like envious because usually I get to see all the products that are coming in right away. And then I I see stuff online. I'm like, oh, my, I want this. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I've been, I've been quite connected with the team just, um, just, just via our, you know, even our daily huddles we do. So two in Vancouver, looking at a third, you got your Toronto one opening in July. What's next? Is it expansion to more Canadian markets or do you have any interest in expanding to the United States or even outside of North America? Yeah, my, uh, my vision has kind of has been before to have five or five to seven Canadian locations and then do international pop-ups or find a city like I was just in Miami for a week and I love Miami. So, you know, I'm like, you know, maybe mine and you, mine and yours MIA, a resort wear collection. While, you know, it's can- it's winter in Canada and no one's selling summer products, we can be selling it down there. So, that is not happening anytime soon, but it's definitely um it's 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 definitely on the vision board and then yes, opening uh, another location in Toronto. And then uh, Calgary and Montreal are also on our um, on our on our thoughts for the future. But uh, really, kind of getting into the Toronto market is our um, is our initial goal. The Toronto back in 2020 was supposed to kick off like a Canadian pop up tour, um, so that is also a possibility of you know getting a little mine in yours mobile and going across um, across Canada to even some of the smaller cities and hosting little pop-ups in the cities and again getting to know the clients there seeing what they're wanting getting them to know about the brand and then ideally having them turn into um, online customers what a great idea testing the market really getting into contact I mean we don't know each other I obviously can see not only your passion but you're a fun person what's the importance <laughs> of fun and fun experiences parties events instead of just straight up transactional selling yeah, I mean, fun and adventure is like personally my like number one and, and two core values. And if I, you know, was just in business, you know, to to make a profit, I probably would have stayed in the sawmill uh, in the sawmill industry. But when I when I opened this, this was my side hustle. This was my fun. So I, um, yeah, it's it's a big part of it's a big part of what I do. And while you know I need the team to like that, my team works hard. We also we also definitely like to have fun together. Next week, we're doing like a workout at, in the morning at the beach. And then we're, we do dinner parties together. And then, so we do it as a team. And then we also bring our bring our clients in. So our clients love a mine and yours party, you know, like champagne, DJs, socializing with other women that care about fashion. And uh, we've had like, I've had customers come in and be like, do you know, I met one of my best friends at your party. And like, I love that. Um, so as we grow, I think it'll be a yeah, it'll it'll be an, an important part um, of like of growing the brand and keeping our customers. And I'm just more of like, what else can we do? Like, what other events can we do that we bring our clients and our team together? And um, you know, we have a we have a great time, and then that just makes them, you know, it, it makes customers more loyal, and it's kind of what I want to do too. Oh, that's fantastic. OMG, as the kids would say, Courtney, you did not go to business school and you are a successful entrepreneur. A young person asks you if they need to go to business school. What is your advice? My advice would be school is always in school is always a positive, but it isn't necessarily needed. I feel like even in the fashion industry, I learned more at my internships than I did at school. So I did an internship almost every quarter in so many different aspects. And that's where I really like got a lot of my learnings from. And then again, it was, you know, even the sawmill business. Like, did I think that running this mill industry was going to give me the lessons I needed to open a fashion, a luxury fashion brand? Absolutely not. You know, that's not what I was in there thinking. But now that I look back, um, it was so imperative. So I think it's like not going into every situation being like, how is this going to help me in the future? Am I learning from it? But just like really like getting into whatever job you're in and trying to take um, get as many takeaways and learnings as you can. But like, but yes, like school is 
while you, if it's from meeting like-minded people or getting the opportunities, like that's how I got my internships was through people through FITM. So, so I think that school is definitely important, but not necessary. And there's so much incredible content that you can even get online nowadays too. So it's just like keeping up with that and, um, and, and getting the learnings any way you can. That's great. Well, it's such a great headline. From the sawmill to the luxury fashion brand resale market, Courtney, where can we best follow you and uh, remind us again about your plans for Yorkville Avenue? Yeah, so our um, our company is the uh, Instagram is mine and yours co, and then my personal one is it's Court Watkins, and we will be opening in Yorkville on uh, seventy nine Yorkville Avenue by the end of July. Everyone, put that in your calendars. And if not, I'm at my contractor. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll be a whole other conversation. Yeah, and we're definitely doing a whole like we as you know as I mentioned like loving parties and events. So we will be doing a um, like a launch party weekend. So uh, there'll be three or four events uh, throughout the weekend that we'll be doing um, with uh, with the clients. So exciting! Great to meet you. Great to hear your plans. Great to hear everything you've done and that you got ahead of you. It sounds so exciting. So I want to wish you continued success. Thank you so much. Thanks, Andrew. It was my pleasure to have you on. And to the listeners, on behalf of Courtney Watkins, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness then check out the natural man podcast join me host mike c as we explore all areas of human wellness physical mental and emotional learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health remember your doctor works for you learn biohacks neurohacks ways to improve sleep and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.